right, good morning. Some fifth graders, sixth graders going up for the first time this morning. Philip, take it easy on them. <clears throat> wow, wasn't that an awesome, uh, that song they tagged onto that last song. Comes right out of the book of Revelation. You'll see that next week. So, welcome this morning. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming in. Bill, good to see you, brother, out there and um, everybody that's here. If you're a guest, we'd love to give you a, a few minutes after the service and give you a gift back there from the Welcome Center. You know, many years ago, <clears throat> many years ago, Walt Disney World started doing exit surveys. They were trying to discover what people, uh, ha what they experienced, you know, in the park uh, as they were leaving. To their surprise, there were a lot of people who expressed disappointment. They were disappointed. And it baffled the, the executives and the, and the people because this is the happiest place on earth, right? The greatest theme park in the world. And the complaints weren't what you thought they were. You know, they didn't complain about the, uh, the, the high prices. They didn't complain about the long lines. They didn't complain about how hot it was. They complained about one thing. <clears throat> They'd given up their family time. They had driven across the country, many of them. They came to this place, did all that, and they came to see one person, and they weren't seeing one person. And guess who that person was? Mickey Mouse, of course. You go to Disney World, you want to see Mickey Mouse. And uh, again, this baffled the executives, and they wondered what in the world, uh, we, you know, we... In our defense, we can't put a Mickey Mouse on every corner. I mean, what would it be like if a kid was leaving one area and there was a Mickey Mouse there and he's riding away in a tram and before he loses sight of this one, there's another one over there. And that'd be like two Santa Clauses on the same street, right? So that what they decided, what they came up with, fixed the problem. It was a brilliant idea. They decided that every day in the same place at the same time, they would have a parade. And guess who was the grand marshal of the parade? Mickey Mouse. And from that point, uh, very few people left disappointed. Now, I'm not advocating for Disney World by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, on a personal level, on a financial level, I hate Disney World. <laughs> Just financially and obviously for some of their recent stands and support. I'm just illustrating the fact that in a spiritual way, you know, when people come to this church, they come to see one person. Whether they know it or not, whether they realize it or not, they come to see one person. They don't come to see the preacher. They don't come to see a worship leader or some other leader. They come for one person and that's to see Jesus. Now, they may not know it. They may not realize it. But that's who they want to see. That's who they need to see. That's who they need to hear from. You know, this book, Themes of Revelation, the book of Revelation, comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis. Of course, you can see the word apocalypse. That means it refers to the end times. 
And it, it means to uncover or to reveal. And we read last week that one of the blessings that will come to us as we read it and hear it and obey it, as it is revealed to us, one of the blessings is that we're going to see Jesus more clearly. And we're going to see him. That's what we need. That's what we want. This book was written, remember, to encourage believers to remain faithful in times of persecution. You remember that? That's the, that's the purpose of the book. And it worked. Remember, the first 300 years of Christianity was extreme persecution. They just got worse, and they experimented. The Romans were masters at putting people to death. They were masters at wiping out uh, you know, their enemy. But they were also masters at incorporating people and allowing them to uh, fit into their system. They, they, they were just smart people in a lot of ways. All you had to do to fit into their system was, uh, you know, to, you could have your gods, you could keep your religion, you just need to throw incense to the altar to, uh, to our Caesar, to our Lord, Caesar's Lord, you would say. And if you can't do that, now we're going to take care of you. And of course, obviously Christians could not do that, and most of them did not do that, although there were many that did, saying it doesn't really matter, we're not really meaning it, we're just doing it to stay alive. And that's a whole other story for a different time. But they were suffering the persecution. They were suffering because the Romans said, you're going to be our targets, and they began to persecute them in many ways. They experimented with how to kill them, but yet the church grew. Tertullian, the second century leader, was right when he said the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So the book of Revelation is a book of encouragement. It's a book of encouragement, and the main reason, the main reason that people could take encouragement from this book is because they got a glimpse of Jesus. They saw Jesus for who he really was in his entirety. Now, last week we talked about this just a little bit. When we read the Gospels, we see Jesus. I think the modern-day Chosen, the Chosen series is an incredible series because it, even it you know, reveals some things about Jesus from the Gospels that you may not have thought of, that you might have, uh, you know, you might have missed reading the Gospels. But the Jesus of the Gospels is not the full picture of our Jesus. Now, it, it's enough, obviously it's enough, but God saw fit that we get the full picture of Jesus. And in order to do that, he gave us glimpses throughout the Gospels, but a full view through the book of Revelation. We see him clearly. When Jesus was here, before he left, he gave a great commission, and he prefaced that commission with these words. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, he was given all authority. Now, who gave it to him, and when was it given to him? To know the answer to that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Remember, last week I told you the book of Revelation, 404 verses, but over 500 references to the Old Testament. And one of the big places they reached into, John did for, and, and Jesus, for this, this revelation is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel chapter 7 answers the question, who gave Jesus authority and when did he get it? John, uh, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. Now the ancient of days is a reference to God the Father. Of God the Father, God the Son, Son of Man, and God the Holy Spirit. 
and he was presented before him, son of man presented before the ancient of days. And to him, son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So right there, in that moment of time, Jesus was given, God the Son was given all authority. So when he stood before his disciples, he said, all authority has been given unto me. So what I'm about to tell you, take note, take it serious. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the end of the age? I believe it's the church age. I believe it's the church age. It started on the day of Pentecost. And because Jesus was getting ready to ascend, remember in Matthew 28, and it lasts all the way until the second coming when the church is taken to heaven, when God's people are taken to heaven. So what he's saying here is that we have the promise of his presence through the Holy Spirit until we once again are in his presence in person. What that means in short is that Jesus is in charge. He's always in charge, and he will always be in charge. He's wearing the crown. I love that old hymn we used to sing, crown him with many crowns. Remember this one, Rusty? The Lord upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. What a great old hymn. Jesus is wearing the crown. He wears the crown because of who he is. Back to the book of Revelation where we picked, off, uh, picked up from last week. We were in, finished verse 3 last week. Now we're in verse 4. Chapter 1, John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. You see, he's eternal. That's who he is. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and, bef- and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he is faithful, the firstborn of the dead. He was the first person to die and rise again and stay alive. You know, Jesus brought a lot of people back to life, or some people back to life, but they all died again. Lazarus died again. The na- woman at Nain's son, he died again. They all died again. Jesus was the firstborn of the dead because he came back to life and didn't die again. And the ruler of kings on earth. So Jesus wears the crown because of who he is, also because of what he did. The next part is a reference to Calvary. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Next week we'll be in chapters 4 and 5 where we'll dig into that a little bit more. But he also wears the crown because of what he will do. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. In other words, his enemies will see him, his friends will see him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Then we have another interesting title, more titles for Jesus. We're painting the picture. We're seeing him clearly, who he is. John wants us to know this is who's talking. This is who's in charge. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
That's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. It says, the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Another reference to his eternity. There's no mistaking who's talking here. Now, I'm going to jump over to chapter 19 real quick because I want to show you the, the additional titles that we get for Jesus because John is just painting this picture. Jesus is revealing. He's uncovering everything. I want you to see me in all my glory and authority and majesty. So in, in verse, uh, chapter 19, John sees this scene. He says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh. Now all of this might sound a little bit like overkill, but if you were suffering in the first century, if you're going through persecution, you want to know that the one you're doing this for, the one you're enduring this for, is worth it. Remember the song we just sang? You're worthy of it all. If you're going to give your life to something, if you're, if you're going to potentially lose a, a limb, maybe a hand or an arm or a leg or fingers or die, all those things were happening. If you're going to be boiled in hot oil, if you're going to be pierced through on a stake and covered in some kind of flammable liquid and put into the ground and lit on fire to serve as human torches... You want to know the one you're doing this for is worthy of it all. And that's, what, that's what's happening here. Take comfort. Take heart. John's saying, Jesus is here to save the day. But there's more. Let's finish out the first chapter. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, <clears throat> the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, they were going through the tribulation that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned, John said, to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands are one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This shows his majesty. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. This symbolizes his purity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This shows his authority. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This shows his glory. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, and this word angels could mean pastor or it could mean angels, you know, messenger, that's what the word angelos means, a messenger. could be the preacher. The seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what John continues to overemphasize, it seems to us, to his readers, to his listeners, is that what he is about to share is not coming from just a disciple. This is not your ordinary book of the Bible. This is Jesus himself, the one who wears the crown, all those descriptions, he's the one talking. And again, in times of trial and persecution and trouble, some of you may be going through trouble. You might have suffered some problem and may still be in it. And the one you need to hear from and the one you need to see is Jesus, right? It's Jesus. He's the only one who can really help you. Now, we need the body of Christ, we need the family, but what we need to see in the body of Christ, what we need to see in our songs, what we need to see in our preaching, what we need to see in everything we do is Jesus. That's what we need to see. And so, in the next two chapters, these seven letters, John said, I want you to tell you, Jesus told John, I want to tell you something, I want you to write it down, things that you see, things that, are happening now, things you have seen, things that are happening now, things you're going to see. I want you to write it down. I want you to send it to these seven churches. And so in these letters, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we see this seven letters to seven churches, and we see uh, one letter per church, and we see a pattern, a rhythm taking place. First in this letter, there's, uh, there's a recipient. There's a recipient. That John, uh, Jesus told John in verse 11, there's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, I say Thyatira, some people say Thyatira, I say tomato, you might say tomato, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, now this isn't Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Laodicea. In fact, let me show you a map of these churches. This is modern day Turkey, and this is uh, approximately where these churches are. Now, most New Testament scholars believe that these churches were in what would be called a postal route, where letters and things were delivered. You know, before the Pony Express, there were couriers. There were people who ran, and they delivered the message. You know, if you ever run a marathon, that was named after someone who ran that distance to deliver a message. For him, it was a message of victory. If I ever ran a marathon, it'd be a big message of victory and then died, then I would die. But the, you can see here, you know, the Romans, one of the things they did, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, one of the things they were uh, known for was their roadway system. And they, they, they allowed the gospel, when we talked about the times being right, they allowed the gospel to be quickly spread across the known world. So this, these Churches, this is where they are geographically, and you notice they make a circle. You start with Ephesus, and you go to Smyrna, Pergamos, Diodorus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You see that circle there? And so we know from Colossians 4 that letters that the Apostle Paul wrote were meant to be shared. 
Colossians 4, Paul said, I want you to take your letter and take it to Laodicea, and I want you to get the letter I wrote to Laodicea, and I want you to share it with your church. Colossus is not even mentioned here. Neither is Corinth, neither is Galatia. So what, I think what's going on here is that this was, this, what, what was going on here is that this message of the churches was meant to say, this is, you know, this is for everybody. This is for everybody. Share these letters. The circular nature kind of leads us to believe that, you know, it's for everybody. For everybody. It's for all time. It's for everybody. For all time. I know one interpretation of the book of Revelation is that the letters uh, describe different uh, historical moments of the church. For instance, the first letter, the letter to Ephesus, would have, it would have applied to the church from A.D. 30, when Jesus died, right in there, until, you know, maybe about 100, uh, A.D. 100. That's the first letter. And then it goes all the way until you and I are living, according to the view of interpretation of the historical view, it, we, you and I are living in the, in the Laodicean age. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I don't think that makes sense because uh, these letters were written to real churches. They were real churches with real problems going on, and they were real, dealing with real issues. And so if they would have understood, oh, this isn't for us, this is for an American church, that doesn't make sense, does it? So there's a recipient, and then there's a description of Jesus. If you thought we had exhausted the descriptions of Jesus from chapter 1 and 19, then 2 and 3, every letter includes another description. Maybe it's repeated or it might be brand new. Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first and the last who died and came to life. Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The holy one. The true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We just cannot exhaust the descriptions for Jesus. I mean, it's, it's like we don't want to leave any stone unturned here. We want you to see Jesus for all that he is, for every single part of him. Thirdly, for five of the seven churches, there's a commendation. In other words, Jesus gives praise. Two of the churches didn't get a commendation. Five did. Some were suffering, they were persevering. Some were in false teaching, they were staying true to the word. Fourthly, for five of the seven, there's a complaint. There's a complaint. In other words, Jesus says, I got this against you. Two of the churches, no complaints. No complaints. For instance, complaints, you have left your first love. You're being influenced by the Nicolaitans. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, which means sexual immorality and idolatry. You're more concerned about your reputation than you are about what's in your heart. You're lukewarm, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Fifthly, there's a call to repentance. That's the call of the whole Bible. That's the call of Jesus, repent. And so in these letters, Jesus says, I've got this against you. You need to repent. Finally, there's the promise of reward to the one who overcomes. You know, there's a chance if you will repent. You're not too far gone. You can come back. You can turn around. Jesus says, come back. And if you do, I'm going to reward you. 
And that's, these rewards wouldn't have meant a lot to us. I mean, we don't even understand them all, but the first century people would have made that connection. Access to the tree of life, receiving the crown of life, hidden manna, the morning star, your name in the book of life, a pillar in the temple of God, sitting on the throne with Jesus. And so all of these letters kind of bear the same rhythm. They, they all have the same kind of flow, and every one of them share this common theme. Jesus is in charge. It's his church. He's given the word. He's making the promise. He's calling you back. He's patting you on the back. He's complaining about what you're doing. It's all about Jesus. I heard Philip say that earlier. So in light of this, what can we take away from these letters today for us as we study this book? Over the next couple of weeks, we're getting ready to jump into chapters 4 and 5, and then we're going to cover a huge chunk of Scripture, starting with verse 16, going to, I think, verse uh, chapter 6, going to verse 19. What can, we, what can we get from these letters? And Here's what I want to say. First of all, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. You ever heard the expression, the more things change, the more they what? Stay the same. It seems like, to me, when I look at it, and I think probably for you too, that if these are the issues to the seven churches, we're seeing the same issues today. Sexual immorality, idolatry, walking away from our first love, all these things are happening today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Take, for example, the church at Ephesus. If there was any church with a notable membership list, it was a church at Ephesus. I mean, they, they boasted of lots of amazing people. The apostle Paul started the church and was there for three years. Priscilla and Aquila, remember those names from the book of Acts? They helped nurture the church and grow it. Timothy was one of their first pastors, Timothy preached there and pastored the church for a while. And then the apostle John, it was, this was his home church before he was exiled to, the, to Patmos. And because John was there, tradition tells us, which makes perfect sense, that guess who else was there? Mary, the mother of Jesus. This was her home church. Because remember what Jesus told John when he was on the cross? He said, John, this is your mother. Take care of her. Mom, this is your son. I mean, this church had all the greats of the first century church right there in the church of Ephesus. Can you imagine the, the, uh, the, um, the things that they were able to do? And I mean, I just imagine a seminar there taught, a seminar taught how to raise the perfect child taught by Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, would that have gotten some parents to show up? If there was any church where it should matter who you are, it was this church. It was this church. But as we read, they had fallen. They left their first love. Even the person you put on a pedestal, even the most spiritual of us are susceptible to temptation and sin and failure. I hope you always remember that. And don't put anybody up there because nobody deserves to be up there except for one. And that's the one we all came to see today. And that's Jesus. Whether it's first century believers or 21st century believers, there's a continuing struggle with pride 
and uh, arrogance. As humans, we always fight this. We're fighting the flesh. We're fighting the urge to put ourselves first, to be more concerned about our appearance or what other people think about us. And boy, if there's ever been an age in which that's true, it's true today with social media and access to people all over the world. We struggle with a puffed-up ego. It reminds me of the, of the old story that Wayne Smith, a preacher in Lexington, Kentucky, used to tell about the governor of Massachusetts named Christian Herter. When Herter was governor of Massachusetts, he was running hard for a second term and uh, chasing votes and going out in the communities and visiting people. And uh, one day after a busy morning of chasing after the votes and shaking hands and hugging people and kissing babies and, and no lunch, he arrived at a church that was having an event, and he showed up there, and they, they were, it was a great big fellowship event, and there were lots of people there, and he was in the right place, and he got in the food line because he was hungry. And so he, he went down the food line, and he got to the woman who was serving the chicken, and he put his plate out, and she put one piece of chicken on his plate, and he was hungry. And now, uh, Christian Herter was a modest and unassuming man. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, egregious or braggadocious or even, uh, you know, uh, pushy. But on this particular day, as hungry as he was, he decided to, you know, maybe to stretch a little bit and push his weight around. So he, uh, he said, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman said, I'm supposed to give one piece to each person. But I'm starved, the governor said. Sorry, only one to a person. And so he decided he's going to push it a little farther. He said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of Massachusetts. She said, I don't care. Do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken. Now move along, sir. That's a great old story, isn't it? Somebody reminded me after the first service... I said, we always need a lady like that in the church. And someone reminded me that we used to have a lady like that in the church. She, I don't know if any of you remember Catherine Proudfoot, but Catherine, would, she'd stick to the details. <laughs> if I told her, hey, this is what we're going to do, she wouldn't let anybody get out of the way. You know, as a student of God's word, I, I realize that as, as much as a preacher or leader can do, as as much as we can do through the years, when it all mounts up, all stacks up on Judgment Day, it's going to be worth about, you know, a quarter, if that. In fact, the Bible says worth less than that. All of our accomplishments are like a pile of filthy rags. You know, I took Jameson down to uh, WU Tech this uh, last Sunday and got him started down there in his culinary uh, program and he had orientation for a couple days and it reminds me of a story that I heard once about a college freshman who went to who went to school for the first time and uh, orientation stuff and <clears throat> he was having a blast and one day he uh, as they were wrapping up the festivities before classes started, they had a big reception, and he was standing there with a plate of food, and, uh, and this older lady walked up to him and struck up a conversation and said, uh, how, how are you liking it so far? And he says, oh, I love it. I think this is going to be a, a great school. I love the intramural sports and the, the people here. I think my professor is going to be great. He says, uh, I, the only complaint I have is just one complaint. She said, what is it? He said, what's the president of the university? 
She said, kind of shocked, looked. She said, why? He said, well, he, he's, he's so old and so out of touch. I don't, think, I don't think he can lead this college. The woman said, young man, do you know who I am? I am the wife of a college president. He said, uh-oh. He said, do you know who I am? She says, no. He said, thank goodness, and ran off. <laughs> Rest assured today, God knows who you really are. He knows. You can't hide. He knows who you are in secret. God knows. And you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you think you're here, if you think you're here, God's still in charge, and he still loves you. Secondly, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you have. Now, most of us won't admit, but we, we think that our identity is wrapped around our possessions. Yeah, the home we live in, the cars we drive, that kind of stuff, but none of that mean anything. For instance, take the church of Laodicea. This is the last church on the postal route, the last church mentioned. It was the wealthiest of all the churches. I mean, this, this city was wealthy. It was known for its banking. This was first century. Fashion and manufacturing industries, they had a thing where they produced black wool, where they made, uh, they made uh, uh, clothing and they made uh, carpets. They even had in Laodicea a, a medical team and a medical hospital where they, they made from pulverized rock in their area a salve for the eye. They were known for their investments in technology and history and archaeology has shown us where they built theaters, stadiums, public baths, shopping centers, and it really sounds like an American city. In fact, in the historical view, this is the one. They say this is the, this is the last age. This is the seventh church. This is the American age. Laodicea was so wealthy that in AD 60, an earthquake destroyed much of the city, and the Roman emperor offered money to help rebuild it, but the citizens, that, citizens there were so wealthy, they said, no, we, we got this. We don't need your money. And they rebuilt it themselves. There was only one thing the city lacked, and that was a good water source. Good water source. They didn't have it. Now, nearby Hierapolis, an adjacent city, they had, they had hot water, really hot water. They had the boiling springs. And Colossae, which we do read about in the Bible, which was near Laodicea, they had refreshingly cold water. And the Laodiceans were, uh, you know, they were so wealthy, they said, hey, well, you know, we'll buy your water, we'll build a viaduct down here to our city, and they did that. And, but even with their advanced technology, by the time the water, the hot water from Hierapolis and the cold water from Colossae got to Laodicea, it had cooled down or warmed up and even was foul-smelling, one historian tells us. So this kind of, this kind of, gives us some insight into what Jesus says here in verse 13 of Revelation 3. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And so we take from this lukewarm Christians. God doesn't like lukewarm Christians. A lukewarm Christian is somebody who's not on fire for Jesus but they really haven't given it up yet, so they're just kind of in the middle there. They're not really doing anything. 
You know, they're lukewarm. They say they love the church. They say they love the mission of the church, but they're not really serving in the church. They're not really giving of their income to the church or definitely not tithing to the church. They say they love what the Lord is doing, but they, they're not really interested in helping get in there and lead it. That's called lukewarm Christianity. And you know what? New Testament scholar Mark Moore suggests that of all the churches listed, our American churches look more like Laodicea than any of the other six. And that's sad because for Laodicea, there was nothing good to say. There was no commendation. And much of the comparison comes down to the fact that America's a rich country. We have a lot of wealth, and we struggle with materialism. More writes, we have money coming out of our ears. It's not, of course, a sin to have money. It's a sin to love money. It's a sin to trust money. The problem with trusting money is that it's so deceptive. He says you're comfortable the entire time you're doing it without ever realizing just how far away from God you really are. In a strange kind of way, the church at Laodicea, the believers there, their hearts mirrored their water system. By the time the water got to them, it was lukewarm and it, it wasn't any good. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have. And lastly, it doesn't even matter where you've been. Jesus has some harsh words for Ephesus and Laodicea, but these aren't, these aren't unloving words. You know, if you had a child and that child was, was uh, flirting around with drugs or flirting around with some other kind of sin or immorality, you wouldn't say, oh, it's okay, honey. You know, you're doing good. You're... You're okay, just, you know, just kind of get, get it back in gear a little bit. That's not the way you would do. If your child was, was, was flirting with something that could take their life, that could end their life, or that could get them hooked for a lifetime and kill them, you'd step in there and say, you've got to stop this. You've got to get out of that. I'm going to help you. We've got, we got to get away from those people and that stuff. That's what Jesus says here. He says, those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be here fighting for you. So be zealous and repent. And here's our focus verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I love the old story of the preacher who was out visiting some of his people and he stopped by this lady's house. The lady came to his church and he saw her car in the driveway, and he went up to the door, and he could hear the TV going in the, uh, in the house, so he knocked on the door, and nobody came to the door. So he knocked again, and nobody came. And so he decided, well, I don't, something's up. So he, he left a note on her door, and it was this verse. He left Revelation 3.20, just the verse, so she'd look it up. And, uh, and so... The next Sunday, the lady shows up, and without even talking to the preacher, she just takes the note he had given her and hands it back to him, and he looks at it, and he noticed that his scripture was marked out. Revelation 3.20 was marked out, and she had put another scripture there, Genesis 1.10. So he said, I'm not sure what that is, so he put it in his pocket. And after church, he looked it up. And, of course, his said, uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would answer, I would come in and eat with and then he looked up Genesis 1.10, and it said, uh, it said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I went and hid myself. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of like 
code. But think about this. Just think about this. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, all those descriptions we read from chapter 1 and chapter 19 and at the beginning of every letter, that one, the one who wears the crown, he says, I have time for you. I want a relationship with you. I want to come in and talk with you. Let's sit down together. I mean, all that he is and all that we are, he says, I love you enough. I'm standing at the door of your life. Let me in. Don't be so busy, so onto your own agenda and your own dreams and your own things that you don't make time for me. That's the message. I want to be number one in your life. I don't want any other place. That's the message Jesus gives us today. He wears the crown. We worship the crown. Lord God, thank you today for your love and grace and for all that you've done for us, all that you are, all that you will do. And Lord, today we bow in surrender and submission to you as the Lord of lords and King of kings. I pray, God, today that if there's anyone here who's not surrendered their life to you, that today would be that day. Make time, that they would make time before their time expires. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing.